This is a Federal News Network podcast. You might have heard in nearly every locale in the nation, home prices have soared. Many houses get multiple offers and sell for way more than the posted price. The Veterans Benefits Administration has been tinkering with the 75-year-old home loan program to ensure it gives veterans a shot at the house they want. Here with an update, VA's Executive Director of Loan Guarantee, John Bell. Mr. Bell, good to have you on. Thank you, Tom. And just give us a sense of the scope of the program. How much money do you have under guarantee and what's your entitlement from Congress to be able to offer? How big is this program? If you put things in perspective of 27 million loans since 1944, that's totaling over $3.4 Last year, we set an all-time record for purchases, 444,000 loans. We are about you know, 12, 13% market share of any mortgage product out there. So we've grown that over the past 10 years from 1% of the mortgage market to, again, over 12% of the mortgage market as we stand today. So VA's had a lot of growth, over 380% over that time period. And we credit a lot of that to changing the process and procedures that we've had, the technology modernization advancements that we've had for the program, trying to get the word out about just how strong our veteran borrowers are. And one key characteristic that we change is the mindset. The mindset of this is not just a program that is available as a soft landing for veterans. This should be their product of choice. And by choosing VA over all the other home loan products out there, we've been able to really capture you know a lot of that market share back. And just to be accurate, the Veterans Benefits Administration doesn't loan money. You back loans, correct, that are made by that's, regular commercial lenders? That's 100% correct. We have a 25% guarantee. And what that does is it entices lenders because we carry 25% of the risk for them. So lenders will make uh, you know, mortgage loans, then they will sell those mortgage loans called mortgage-backed securities. They will sell those in the open market. But this gives an assurity to the entire industry that the government backing of that 25% is going to stave off defaults, which is, again, our default ratio is in line with conventional um, and much less than other agency programs out there. So a given borrower with VA backing then, if they had a risk rating to a lender of X after they are backed by VA, then their rating would drop to 0.75 risk or something. That's a great way to think about it. That's pretty much what we do to try to limit cost to the veteran and to the lender that's lending that money. And then on the back end of it, it's from the default space. If that loan is going bad, VA is there to help mitigate between the borrower and the servicer so that we can figure out the best option available at that time. So servicers aren't there doing it on their own. They also have the backing of VA to help our veterans make sure that they can stave off some of that financial impact. And in rolling up the mortgage portfolios into those securities, do you have any connection to the markets that are controlled by Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae? I think from a total market share, that is correct, from a collaborative space, which is if you take COVID, for instance, we all had to work together to make sure that we stood up the mortgage industry while we went through COVID. So we had to ensure that we could still lend money, even if appraisers couldn't make it into homes, right? We had to make sure that lenders still felt comfortable and that they still had the government backing in 
uh, originating those files and then also keeping costs down, we were still able to break origination records through 2020, 21, and now on to 22. We're speaking with John Bell. He's executive director of Loan Guarantee at the Veterans Benefits Administration. And you mentioned that you made some process changes and some back-end information technology updates to make the program, I guess, easier to use for veterans. Tell us about some of those. Yeah, some exciting things. Uh, If you think about VA 10 years ago and how we would review files, a lender would mail in this file that was probably three, 400 pages thick. And we couldn't glean any data from those files. We couldn't share that nationally. So if Wells Fargo was doing a loan in the state of Oregon and also doing a loan in the state of Washington, we couldn't compare and contrast what that experience was like. Now we're able to glean 237 pieces of information, data from each one of those files we review. And then we're able to scorecard performance of our lenders so that they understand how they're competing and benchmarking against other lenders. It has improved the overall health of the program because they're not only able to see how they're performing against others, but they're also able to see why they aren't performing as well against the rest of the country. And what is performance for a lender? I would think, I guess I presumed you were more worried about the performance of the borrower, but what are some of the parameters of lender performance that you need to track? So what we require are lenders to at least follow our guidelines. And then lenders, because they own 75% of the risk, they can establish or put on additional guidelines on top of ours. And so what we're trying to understand is, is that additional requirement worth the value of preventing a veteran into the home? And so as we're able to benchmark what those differences are in the additional requirements that they have, we're able to teach the lender that value isn't necessarily getting you the right result. And so that's the piece that we were missing in the puzzle is being able to go back to the lenders and say, okay, fine, you want to put a six-month reserve requirement on a loan that's over 600000 but the value of performance in that loan versus a loan that doesn't have that requirement is the same, equal, or better. And so while they're missing out on all of those originations, they're doing it for the wrong reason. And you were able to glean this information from these paper packets in what manner? Scanning them or digitizing them? Or no, how- no, it's a wonderful question. So we, we started with electronic uploads. So they would be able to upload their packages directly from their what's called the, their loan origination system. And then we just switched earlier this year to a true electronic system-to-system transfer of that data. So they no longer have to download a package and upload it. It's all done electronically. And then at the end of the year, we're actually moving into our API tech. API is Application Program Interface, and it gives us a lot of opportunities from an analytics um, capability that we just didn't have before. And what about the aspect of the program that faces the veteran borrowers? So one of the big key changes, or actually two of them real quick, one is we improved eligibility timelines. Ten years ago, we averaged about 20 business days in determining what the eligibility of the borrower was just to participate in the program, just to be benefit eligible. 
Now, because we do those electronically and instantaneously, now 95% of applicants that apply for eligibility are approved in less than three business days. So it has really been a game changer for us in reducing the time that it takes in that process to get a borrower from an applicant to an eligible applicant for lenders. We also have improved our appraisal process. And in November, I actually um, testified a hearing in, in December, but through November, we had 1,500 unassigned appraisals at that time. We just had a huge need for recruiting more appraisers in particular areas. We had an impending volume of loans coming in. And so we're at about 1,500 in unassigned appraisals. We're now down to zero. But we've also reduced the time it takes to deliver an appraisal from 11.8 business days down to eight business days, which is honestly in line or better than most other markets out there in loan products. So by fixing those few things, we've decreased the timeline that it takes to get into a loan, which then allows veterans to compete better when they go to bid. Yeah, my question then, has all of this helped veterans in this crazy market where sometimes you have to act fast or go above the asking price and not have any baggage associated with your bid for a house in the eyes of the seller? So last year, we did 444,000 purchases. We're about 4% off that mark right now. And what we're seeing is while rates are increasing, and you know prices in certain areas are stagnating. We're seeing fewer bids, which are enabling more veterans to be able to take advantage of this time. What veterans were competing against six months ago, eight months ago, were cash offers, and most of those offers were from investors that were flooding the market. Now that investor activity has constricted and it's allowed veterans to compete better. Are we at a spot where we're saying that we're done? Of course not. We've got to get the message out. The message is mostly being lost to those sellers and the listing agents that really aren't even accepting agency contracts to begin with. So when they go to list the property, they're not marking list property available to submit from an agency. And so they're not even seeing our veteran loans. So we're hoping to reduce that by working with the National Association of Realtors. We've done a couple of videos with them. And then also we talked to them again this week about getting the message out. And then for us, getting lenders and we're building out a training team to help with establish more materials so that we can combat those issues. John Bell is Executive Director of Loan Guarantee at the Veterans Benefits Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, thank you so much for having me. And look, if I want to leave you with one thing, if you know a veteran, they haven't used their benefit or they haven't been able to use it because someone tells them they can't, you're costing them money. Tell them they're leaving money on the table. All right. Fair enough. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. 
has been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? You know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there are so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood, and I and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind that that what we say and do. especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, 
You know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2 of Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. Yes, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.